Earlier in the service, Audrey noted that today we're focusing on our God who takes care of business and gets things done. And among God's people made in God's image are type three personalities, uh, the achiever, performer, motivator, other names like that. I'm not an expert on the Enneagram, and so I looked up several quickies, you know, some ways of helping a person like me try to understand some of these things. So I found some things on the light bulb and how do you screw it in. And you've probably heard how many Mennonites or Mormons or Presbyterians or atheists it takes to screw in a light bulb. Well, people have also pondered how many type threes it takes to get that light bulb in. And I found the first answer, it said one, he or she holds the light bulb up and the room revolves around him or her. <laughs> well, I didn't like that answer, so I looked for another one. And they said, well, it's just one person who's needed, but you've got to have someone watching. And then the third one disagreed and said, no, it takes two, but they've got to have different inclinations or as Enneagram people call it, wings. Uh, the three with individualistic type four wings would go out and buy the very best and brightest bulb available. And then the three with type two helper inclinations would screw it in and take all the credit for brightening up the room. <laughs> Ouch, I'm a three. When I took the Enneagram test a few months ago, I found myself described by that category, complete with uh, maybe some of the wonders and lots of the warts. My theme verse could be the one that was read earlier, whatever your task, put yourselves to it as done to the Lord and not for your masters. Well, my middle name is James, and that's actually a variant on the biblical name Jacob. And several students of the Bible and the Enneagram say that Jacob is a classic type three. Uh, and so like Jacob, my personality type gets its sense of worth and lovableness from what we can cook up, by what we can do, even if that means that we might need a few skins to cover our smoothness. So this morning we continue this series on stained glass windows of divine light by focusing on that dimension of God and of people who love building things, restoring things, making things happen. About a century ago, the gifted Afro-American poet James Weldon Johnson spent time traveling through the deep south, visiting in many churches of his people. And out of those journeys came a tribute to his people's faith, God's trombones, seven Negro sermons in verse. One of those was the creation. 
Now, those of you who are well steeped in Genesis or have contemporary gender sensitivities may quibble with some of his details, but what I want to point out is that echoing those sermons that he heard in southern black churches and using the folkways and imagery of his people, Johnson has highlighted some really important parts of that biblical account. Johnson begins with God looking out over the darkness of space, a darkness is black, that is blacker than a hundred midnights down in a cypress swamp. And God looks out and says, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. And then the poem goes on with God creating light and the universe and the world with all of its living things. And God takes incredible delight in each act of creation, declaring that's good each time. And then Johnson continues, then God walked around and God looked around on all that he had made. He looked at his sun and he looked at his moon and he looked at his little stars. God looked at the world with all its living things. And God said, I'm lonely still. Then God sat down on the side of a hill where he could think. By a deep, wide river he sat down with his head in his hands. God thought and thought till he thought, I'll make me a man. Then up from the bed of the river God scooped the clay, and by the bank of the river he kneeled him down. And there the great God Almighty who lit the sun and fixed it in the sky, who flung the stars to the most far corner of the night, who rounded the earth in the middle of his hand, this great God, like a mammy bending over her baby, kneeled down in the dust, toiling over a lump of clay until he had shaped it in his own image. Then into it, God breathed the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Amen. Amen. A reminder of our creator God, who does things and gets them done. Now, although my second name is James or Jacob, I find myself identifying more with other type threes in the Bible, like Naaman and Abigail. And we find the story of Abigail in 1 Samuel 25. The future King David and his guerrilla warriors have been protecting the locals from Philistine attacks. And one of these locals was a wealthy farmer whose very name, Nabal, means fool. It's the word for, you know, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, that's Nabal. And it's sheep shearing time, a time for festivities and feasting. And these delegates from David show up, asking for their protection provisions, so to speak. And First Samuel records Nabal's surly response, and then David's. Who is David? Who's this son of Jesse? 
There are many servants today who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and the meat that I have butchered for my workers and give it to men who come from who knows where? And so David's men turned away and came back and told David all of this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. So Nabal and his men are about to be massacred. Enter Abigail, Nabal's wife. And she's described in 1 Samuel as clever and beautiful. And she quickly prepares a feast of bread, meat, and wine, loads it on donkeys, and hurries to intercept David. And when they meet, she falls before him, assumes part of the blame, admits that her ill-natured husband, Nabal, has lived down to his name, the fool. And she then appeals to David's deeper values. When the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. And then David is able to respond, Blessed be your good sense, and blessed be you who have kept me today from blood guilt and from avenging myself by my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there would been, have been left to Nabal not so much as one male. So I aspire to be like Abigail, looking for the best in others, uh, appealing to their better natures, and thus helping to build a better world. But like Abigail, I often fail to seek and call that forth in the Nabals of my world. Now, she was married to Nabal, so perhaps in our marriage, Audrey, you have that challenge. <laughs> no, I assumed I was. <laughs> and then we've got the Syrian general Naaman. And 2 Kings 5 tells us that this commander of the army of the king of Aram was a great man and in high favor with his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. So this is a man who gets things done. He's a great man known for his military skills, known for his accomplishments. Now I was always much smaller than my two years older brother and there was one time when I briefly bested him in a fight. When he was asleep one afternoon, I tied his <laughs> leg to the bedpost, pummeled him, and ran, and enjoyed almost 30 seconds of victory. <laughs> now, as a bookworm, I didn't get my strokes from anything physical. I got them from my marks at school. And then when I got older, my hobby became gathering one of the most extensive breeding collections of quality, pure, wild, and mutant forms of the ringneck pheasants, some 27 different kinds. I was what I could do, what I could have. Those were my forms of accomplishment. And that script followed me into my careers as a teacher, as a pastor, as a, an intentional interim. 
My sense of personal worth has been connected to my sense of making a difference for my students, of helping congregations build something better. So Naaman was a great man and in high favor because of his accomplishments and he suffered from leprosy. That debilitating disease that isolated all of its sufferers. Now my leprosies have been far less noticeable, perhaps my early undiagnosed need for glasses and thus my poor eye-hand coordination, my sense of athletic inferiority, my, my father's suicide death when I was 13. But what I find especially telling in Naaman's story is his journey toward healing. And that journey begins with his wife's servant girl, a captive who was taken during one of Aram's raids on the Israelites. And the first correct step that Naaman takes is listening to this seeming nobody within his household because she's the one who knows about the healer prophet. Now, being a man of accomplishment, Naaman expects things to be done according to protocol, befitting a man of his stature. And so his request to his king, the letter then that sends Israel's king into a real tizzy, his disappointment that the prophet didn't come out and wave his hand and, and do a miraculous healing on the spot, his initial refusal to bathe in this inferior Jordan River, those almost succeed in torpedoing his healing. But then, according to 2 Kings, but his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, wash and be clean? I must admit that feels a bit familiar. I like to get things done. And I value working alongside the movers and shakers in a congregation. But it's often those others who pull me up short. And I recall candidating in a congregation where, you know, I usually ask what are, what are the traditions right after the service. And in this congregation, they mentioned that after the service, the worship leader, song leader, and preacher of the morning, and some others will form a greeting line. I forgot about that and some others part until we started forming the line and several Down syndrome and other challenged folks joined us in the line for their Sunday morning hugs. And I recall the tingles up and down my spine as I realized that this congregation had caught something very special about God's kingdom vision. During my eighth year of teaching, a popular student committed suicide and I was encouraged to be available to his friends. And these friends often talked about the night after Jim's funeral. And they talked about how they gathered around the grave in silence at first and then as if on a signal, they all gave him the finger. This had obviously been a very special moment, and I kept hearing it over and over again, and I'm still surprised that I was 
I was somehow able to keep my judgmental mouth shut. As a youth, I had taken all those feelings, those angry feelings about dad's death, and I had chuffed them way, way down. And only years later, after significant counseling, was I able to head to the cemetery for a long overdue talk. Anger, and then a new overwhelming sense of compassion and love. Those youth had something really important to teach me. It took me a long time to learn it. Our God, our God gets things done. And I resonate with that and like others of my personality style, I do add to that the tendency to look towards others with the question, you know, how am I doing? My challenge, now especially in retirement, is to recognize that I'm beloved of God, not for what I accomplish, not for what others see me capable of doing, but because of God's grace, God's love. And in some senses, that's a much broader Mennonite challenge as well, whatever our personality styles. We've created highly effective and respected institutions for joining God in God's work. In God's work of healing, peace, justice, MCC, MDS, MEDA, CPT, etc. And then as a local congregation, we're about bringing out the best in each other in our world by preparing space to listen and speak, practicing to lead and serve, providing support for rest, renewal, and growth, and provoking one another to love and good deeds as we walk together in the way of Jesus. And the challenge, especially for my personality type, perhaps more than others, is remembering that last phrase in the way of Jesus. We know God best and most fully in Jesus who emptied himself taking the form of a servant being born in human likeness. Ours is a God who, to echo James Weldon Johnson, kneels down in the dust like a mammy bending over her baby, toiling over us, we lumps of clay. And my prayer for us is that we may value ourselves and others, however similar or different, as fellow beloved living souls shaped in God's image and now privileged to join in God's work, God's work of healing and restoration. Amen. My name's Tom. I'm a three. <laughs> just want to admit that. Anybody else here is identifying as a three by what you're hearing? No one else wants to admit that? Okay, I thought we could have a conversation at coffee later. Okay, so actually I feel like this Enneagram stuff is kind of pretty complex. And uh, I think like, okay, Ken is a three, Tom's a three, but I don't think we're purely one thing, right? We have a little bit of many things. When I look at the data that I got from when I did the test, I was, the highest number was three, but 
two and one we're, we're following not too far behind. So uh, I think we're all kind of complex. But having said that, I think, you know, the results that I got were fairly accurate. I do think of myself tr as trying to be an effective person. I do quote, ev value efficiency, industriousness, and competence. I do want to be a productive person bringing projects to completion and accomplishing goals. That's what it said. This morning I had a revelation. All of that to me sounds like someone who's a nerd. <laughs> it hit me. I'm a nerd. So I told Teresa, you're living with a nerd. She said, I know. <clears throat> so we're, like, I think like being effective, you heard this thing like the Protestant work ethic. So Protestant people, I don't know what is say about do Catholic people not work as much? I don't know. But anyway, I feel like I have that kind of thing. I've been a worker all my life. I value work. I grew up on the farm. We worked. We planted things and we harvested things. And um, so, I don't know. Am I effective? Like, I, when I think about that, I think of my workplace. And as Brenda introduced, I work in crop uh, science research. And we've developed many varieties over the years. And they get grown. That makes me feel good. And I have supervised some students to their uh, masters and PhDs and that makes me feel good too and get various grants and do these projects and stuff like that and then eventually we publish some papers and, and we like to do that. So I try to be effective and I think, well, why, why do I want to be effective? What, what's the reason to be effective? And um, I don't know, I suppose I feel, you know, God puts me in a certain place so I should try to do my best uh, where I am. Um, and I feel that, okay, if we develop new crop types that are efficient, that can help farmers and help consumers. And, and I like it if, if I can be of some help to students to, in their future careers. I mean, aside from my work, I don't know, am I effective? I, um, well, I can mow the lawn. I can uh, cut a sausage in half, as we did yesterday. Um, if we need to have the plumbing fixed at our house, I can effectively hire someone. <laughs> to, same with renovating the kitchen. I'm not going to do that myself. You may know of Jesus' parable of the talents. So I kind of like that one. The guy has five, he gets ten. That's pretty good. The guy has two, he gets four. Denise, not bad, hey? But the guy who just got one and just buries it, I didn't really didn't really like, didn't think that was very impressive anyway. Maybe that's a simplistic interpretation. Um, so, okay, effective maybe, but I noted in my Enneagram results that they sent me, it said your two, two wing style, actually the less resourceful side of two, may lead you to be especially willing to change yourself in order to meet the needs or wants of others. You may find yourself especially sensitive to when others notice or approve of your successes and accomplishments. Yes, that happens. You are pragmatic and can compromise in order to get projects online and accomplished. Compromise is good, isn't it? You may also find that you avoid sticking to principles and act instead out of expediency. You may avoid taking on a task if you think there's a chance that you will fail. So there it is. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, I, I have red-green colorblindness. Did anybody know that? See, of course you wouldn't know that. Well, maybe Denise knew that, but you probably don't know it because it's kind of a weakness, and I don't really like to tell you about my weaknesses, right? Fear of failure is a characteristic of my personality. In grade one, I kind of 
and I lied to the teacher. She said, well, what color did you color that thing? I said, well, that one. And it was supposed to be purple, and it was something else, and I got it wrong, and I didn't want to get it wrong, and I couldn't see the color anyway. So anyway, and, you know, I, I resonated with Ken's story just uh, 10 minutes ago, you know, about, about his dad. And um, Ken and I shared a bit uh, a week or so ago about some of these stories. And, you know, I have a story from when I was sort of the age that Ken was when, when, when that, that suicide happened for his dad. And I was driving a car that crashed and my mom got injured. And it was, and, and she, you know, she didn't walk after that day. And um, it's a story I don't really like to talk about a lot. You may not hear me talk about it at coffee every day. And it's sort of a thing where maybe, I don't know, maybe it's part of my personality to push down certain kind of feelings like that. Anyway, um, is God a three? Think about that. Is God effective? I think Ken told us God is effective. God created. I feel, you know, we can talk about God as love and joy and peace, and we're going to hear about love and joy and peace in the coming weeks. And, um, uh, but... In some ways, I think God is also a three. Uh, God effectively created the universe and its in intricacies. And if you remember Rick Friesen's uh, image on the screen about a couple months ago with a girl lying on the grass and looking to the sky, and then you know, the, the camera zooms up from her eyeball into the sky to the clouds, to the solar system, to the Milky Way, to the black holes, just psh, all intricacy and everything. And then it comes zooming all the way back down right into her eyeball, into her cornea and retina and her brain and her cells and her molecules and atoms and protons and quarks and quarks. And you sort of see like the incredible intricacy of God, the creator, more than I can uh, put my head around. So I feel like God is very effective. And um, so, but I don't think God's creativity stopped or effectiveness stopped with creation. So then, to me, if I have to give an example, okay, then he sent Jesus because he saw the world needed something. And so I think God, Jesus, Holy Spirit were effective in um, coming with a, a new thing for us uh, because we really needed something new. And they kind of effectively carried out the plan from long ago for Jesus to come and live here with us and give us a, a, a new way. And the th third example I was thinking about, about God being effective, is, um, well, you know, there are nine personality types in that Enneagram business, not just one, so there's nine. So God was effective, I think, in making us interesting people, we're, and I think it would be boring if we were, maybe God thought it would be boring if we were all just the same types, and so God uh, uh, made, made many types. And uh, those of you who went to the little uh, workshops with Deb aren't. Deb is the one who led the uh, Enneagram workshops here at Wildwood. And she said that um, based on her reading, uh, she feels that our personalities are approximately one-third from our genetics, one-third from, you know, the family we grew up in, and one-third from the circumstances of life that we, that we uh, were part of. And I feel like you know, God is present in all three of those uh, things. I think Joe asked us to look a bit like, does your personality affect your faith? 
And I thought about that and think about it in different ways, and it's not an easy question to answer. And um, I would probably say yes in some ways. I feel like if you ask the question, is faith effective? Is faith effective? I don't know. But for me, it's, it's necessary. I don't know per se it's effective. I got another weird analogy. You can think about it, like faith and personality. Do you remember like in the, the comics, who gets the newspaper? You know, and they used to have these comics, these 3D comics. Anybody remember that? This picture there was kind of blurry, but if you held it up the right distance from your face and you really kind of relaxed and kept staring at it for about 20, 30 seconds, eventually psh, the picture would pop out at you. Anybody? Oh, maybe you have to be like my age or older to know that. I don't know. Anyway, what does that have to do with faith? But to me, it's sort of like if I relax myself, my tension, release my emphasis on being effective, maybe then I can kind of just be into the moment and it can help my faith. I can listen to the hymn and let it sink into my heart. I can maybe close the hymnal because I already know the words and just maybe shed some tears. And I, last week I, we heard Katie say that uh, about shedding tears and how beautiful it is to cry. And I thought I, I really kind of, resonated with those, with those uh, nice words. I, I used to think about head and heart as part of life and faith. And in the Enneagram world, they talk about head, heart, and gut. Gut being sort of like your intuition. And for me, I've, I've always felt my faith is, is at least 50% is in my heart uh, and, and less of the others. And and now, when I study about this Enneagram business, it says that type three people are actually heart people. Two, three, and four are heart people. So even though I'm kind of a science uh, uh, experiments kind of guy in my, in my workplace, um, when it comes to my faith, I feel like how it hits my heart is, is pretty important. So Joe could give a sermon, Ken could give a sermon, it can hit my heart or a song can touch my heart or, some, or a hug or the parables of Jesus. When I was younger, let's say a teenager, I would often hear this expression in church or in church kind of events and it would be like this, a personal relationship with Jesus. Somebody has a personal relationship with Jesus or you should have a personal relationship with Jesus. And we heard it, in my mind, I heard it often. And I thought, it's a bit repetitive. But when I think about it now, I feel like, really, it's kind of the essence of, of my faith or the essence of Christian faith, how I see it. So when I pray to Jesus, when I put my trust in Jesus, when I have a personal relationship with Jesus, then I can feel more re at rest, at peace, at relax, take the pressure off. I can give my pressures to the big guy, as our friend Shelley calls him, the big guy. So I think, uh, yeah, let's go to the next page. Uh, two, two weeks ago, Pastor Joe talked about Jesus, God with us. He said, the kingdom of God is within us, no longer I, but Christ in me. I am merged with God. God is not entirely other. Where can we find God in the nine personality types around us? 
there's more to God than any one of us can see. I thought it was really beautiful how, how he described that. And, um, and, and maybe the point about, you know, there are nine types, so it's not all about me. It's about all of us, and we all have our own way to see God and to understand God, and, and, uh, and we can grow from each other. Uh, what I could tell by looking at the, these uh, Enneagram things is that for each type, there's kind of like positive and less positive aspects of, of every personality. For example, in type 3, we are effective, but we're also prone to being deceitful, which, whichever of the nine we are, we are human. We, we are all imperfect. Lately, I have kind of have a love of the Lord's Prayer. And as I think about us having maybe positives and negatives in our personalities, I, I thought about this the other day. Near the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And what do we mean by that? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Um, are we maybe praying for our positive personality traits to be expressed more fully? If all of us more fully express our more positive personality traits, surely the world will be a better place. Surely God's kingdom will come. That's my thought. And later in the Lord's Prayer, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Are we kind of praying for strength to keep our less positive personality traits a little bit in check? If we all did that, would the world not be a better place? Surely God's kingdom would come nearer. Some rambling. How to be more in balance. This is a thing that comes at the bottom of the Enneagram output. How you can be more balanced, Tom. So Deb, Deb Arndt, who, who led those sessions, said that threes like others to notice what they've done. And she suggested that solitude is good for threes. Learn to be okay in yourself rather than needing to be seen not allowing fear of failure to force us into hiding. Threes observe their emotions in solitude. When I'm alone and don't need affirmation, I can be with my feelings before God. She suggested, go for a walk alone, process the day, and be at peace. And maybe the other thing that came to my mind about how to be more imbalanced, even just the song that we sang uh, a few moments ago from John Bell, I own a community, Scotland. Take, oh, take me as I am. Summon out what I shall be. Set your seal upon my heart and live in me. Amen. I see this song as kind of an encouragement to me and to all of us as imperfect people, but we are people loved by God, and we're asking God to live in us. <laughs>